0: welcome to inside the hive i'm your host nick bilton so this is without question been one of the most insane intense weeks of my career and probably my life as a citizen it is astounding to see the degree to which coronavirus has essentially shut down the world and continues to do so uh Our show this week is not about the coronavirus. I recorded the show last week with Connor Doherty, who is an economics reporter at the New York Times and has an amazing new book out called Golden Gates, which looks at the housing crisis in the United States. And I do hope you listen uh, through to the whole thing. Um, I just wanted to do a little PSA here. Um, I will be having a guest on, possibly two guests next week, to talk about the coronavirus and how this is going to spread even further. Um, I know between now and a week from now is essentially a thousand years. And with the speed with which this thing is spreading and taking over the world, Um, my guest next week uh, will be Scott Burns, who wrote the movie Contagion, um, uh, has done a tremendous amount of research into the way pandemics spread globally, uh, and um, speaks to folks at the WHO and CDC and so on, and uh, hopefully we will bring on a scientist to join him. So if you have any questions you'd like me to ask... um, Reach out on Twitter, at Nick Bilton. Uh, you know, let me know anything it is that you want me to ask him, and um, and we'll be able to discuss next week. Uh, for people that are looking for more information on the coronavirus, I urge you to go and listen to Sam Harris's podcast. It's an excellent podcast. He has two this week about the coronavirus. There's plenty of other great information out there. Uh, don't follow the, the most dramatic news sources. Go uh, online and find people who are doctors, who are scientists, who study epidemiology, and follow them and listen to what they have to say. Um, it will you know, save you a lot of anxiety and, um, and also make you a lot more informed. So without further ado... Oh, and don't forget to wash your hands and don't touch your face and stay away from people and all that fun stuff. Uh, So my guest this week is Connor Doherty. He is an economics reporter at the New York Times. I worked with him many, many years ago. He's a great guy. He's been covering housing and economics uh, for the Journal, too, before the Times. Uh, His book, Golden Gates, looks at the the housing crisis in America and focuses specifically on California and how that is uh, a signal for what the rest of the country is going to look like in the next few years. Uh, So without further ado, Karna Doherty. Welcome to Inside the Hive. We've got two people here with a slight cold, so hang with us. Um, I'm super excited to welcome to the show an old colleague of mine uh, who I think is one of the only people I know who is a New York Times reporter, uh, a skateboarding fanatic, and has written a book about the housing crisis. So we're going to jump into, maybe we can jump into all three of those. We'll start with your new book. It's called Golden Gates, fighting for housing in America. Connor Doherty, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. I was at a bookstore event last night, and a bunch of people I know from what's called Skate Twitter. Skate Twitter? Yes, hashtag Skate Twitter showed up. Oh, wow. And Did you guys was, go skating after you? No, but there was a book- bunch of talk about as you say, housing Twitter and skating Twitter and <laughs> to some extent New York Times Twitter all meeting at uh, at a Pasadena bookstore, so it was great. It sounds like the beginning of like
0: one of those old uh, movies where you know the 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 guys in the black leather pants and the knives show up and the you know exactly anyway um all right so i uh, I'm super excited to talk to you about this book. Uh, it is a topic as I, someone who lived in San Francisco and actually couldn't afford to live there and had to leave. Um, uh, I'm so fascinated by and someone who now lives in Los Angeles and sees the ho- housing crisis and the homelessness and gentrification and so on. Um, uh, there's I have so many questions. I want to start with actually the beginning of the book. And there's this moment you talk about in 1945 in life magazine where they profile three different families and, uh, and they all have vastly disparate incomes, and yet they kind of have somewhat similar lives. So tell us about that, and we'll go from there.
1: Yeah, it was amazing. I stumbled upon this article. I had read a reference to this article in a history book, and I was like, oh, my God, I have to find this actual article. It was this giant 13 spread in Life magazine that ran, I think, about a month after World War II had ended. And it was fascinating to me because they said in the article California, and Southern California in particular, is this prism through which we can see what the future of the next couple decades of America are going to be. That was the premise of the article. And they profiled, as you say, three families. They made, in today's dollars, about $700,000. That was a film composer, I believe, for movies. About $140,000. That was like a, a salesperson for, obviously, a pretty skilled salesperson in a in a company i forget what company they did and then about $40,000 and that was a fireman which back then was $3,000 yes exactly yeah, yeah. so i'm giving you the uh the today's modern day, just so t- people don't think this the fireman No was 40, no no no, no. the, in the inflation adjusted yes. terms uh, in, uh, and yeah so the fireman who was the great surprise of the article was living in a six room house in Glendale with, uh, I think, an orange or lemon tree in the backyard, had a kind of a deck, an outdoor area. And the premise of this article was, which I think is really quite lovely, is look at how well a large swath of Americans are doing. And it was like this celebration, not quite of equality. Obviously, there were differences between the two people. But the idea that everyone was sharing in this Wealthy culture, wealthy country, we were building, and that it was defining the richness of the country by how broadly it was distributed.
0: Well, so, but the, but then it doesn't work out that way. And and when did it when did it stop working out that way? Because if if you go to Glendale today, and it, that house, I would imagine that that firefighter lived in who made three thousand dollars a year is probably. Uh, over a million dollars and uh, and a firefighter today could not afford it. And I remember being in San Francisco before I left. And I remember there was a statistic I even wrote about it that came out about how there wasn't a single firefighter, teacher, police officer, or, you know, ambulance driver, whatever it was that could afford to purchase a home in San Francisco literally zero homes that they could afford based on their income and so on. So how did we get from
1: that to where we are now? So therein lies the book. And uh, (laughs) I think, so the first, there's this wonderful book I read. I discovered it halfway through the reporting called The Environmental Protection Hustle. And despite the kind of Fox News title, the book is... Pretty reasonable. It kind of talks about how, around the country in the Bay Area, they have um, they have this huge housing problem developing. This book was published in 1979, so he's just seen the beginnings of it. But what he starts talking about is there's all these people screaming. It has now become a, a, a colloquial term. Not in my backyard. NIMBY is now the term. And his the premise of his book was environmentalism is great. It did a lot of wonderful things. It gave us mere woods. It protected large parts of the Marin headlands. There's plenty of open space around this country that people enjoy and recreate in and all that. But his, the premise of his book was people are now using the front of environmentalism to basically prevent housing from going where it should go, which is in kind of denser city quarters and neighborhoods where housing is kind of been uh, designated for. And, Anyway, so this guy starts talking about this problem, and for the next pretty much forty years, pretty much I was born in seventy-seven. So pretty much the rest of my life, it gets steadily worse. You know, California I think was about fifty percent more expensive than the nation by about nineteen eighty. Now it's several times more expensive, and and obviously this isn't universal, right? There are parts of more rural parts of California that are more in line, but generally in the major cities, San Diego, L.A., and the Bay Area, it's way more expensive than the nation. And what I found fascinating to me is how many people saw this coming, how well-developed this research is. There's this amazing article I've, uh, I've linked to on Twitter a couple times. In 1981, the New York Times ran an article that said the headline was Changing San Francisco is foreseen as a haven for wealthy and childless. So, uh, and many of the... Changing San Francisco is a haven. That pretty much describes, you know, the tech community. But in 1981, they saw it coming, right? So, so two things happened. So, how do we get here? One thing that happened is the economy has bifurcated into a a more unequal economy for some structural reasons. There is... There's within some variation, but there's two main poles of this economy. One is what we call knowledge workers, which is obviously most symbolized by tech, but it could be finance or entertainment or anybody who is using some kind of, usually some kind of digital machine to amplify their creativity in their mind, whether that's building a software platform or Uh, producing a film or whatever and then you through the magic of technology you can distribute this to all these people and make a lot of money because your reach is so much further. Then there's a second kind of person which is the service sector they are people who clean houses they take care of children they uh, manicure back Uber drivers manicure back people who really whose jobs involve some kind of face-to-face or direct service type uh Service and um, and those people don't get paid that much, but they have to be near those other people. They have to live right next to them because they're
0: providing the service to yes. the people that get paid a lot to do exactly whatever. And they our housing they market does
1: not at all reflect, particularly in in big cities like L.A. and San Francisco, doesn't or New York or all, all sorts of places do not reflect that new economy. And so, figuring out how we can reflect that in our housing market is kind of like our big challenge.
0: So when you go back to the story in the beginning where 1945, our $3,000 firefighter, $3,000 a year firefighter, um, and you get to today, right? It's it, Has it been a ping pong of, of a different different screw-ups that have essentially happened where we've kind of had... because. The, the, the ability to afford a home in Glendale, uh, um, for listeners that don't know where Glendale is, it's like, what would you like describe it? It's like, it's like the, it's
1: like the beginning of the San Fernando Valley. In yeah. My it's mind. like
0: the, it's not LA really. It's yeah. like the other side of the hill and, um, and for a long time was, was somewhat affordable, but, but the, the value of a home there hasn't changed, and the value of homes in Glendale's all around the country have not changed that dramatically in the past few years. This has been something that has been kind of leading up to this, right? Totally,
1: it's like this long kind of aching disease that now just has reached this crazy breaking point. With, you know, even pretty high income people unable to afford homes. I think I was just at a at a big event uh, about for the Harvard Joint Center on Housing Studies in Minneapolis, and they just released this report that showed that like. Almost all the growth in renters over the past decade has been pretty high income renters because, and it's not because they love renting, it's because they can't afford a home. And then of course, the worst symbol of this all is homelessness. And so this problem has been getting steadily worse. And I think a couple things happened. One is the great recession happened and they essentially stopped building for like a decade. And that exacerbated the problem even more. On top of that, uh, then we had the, the millennial generation kind of moving into the, out, of their, out of their parents' homes and out of college into the workforce, and that hugely increased the demand for housing. I believe you are a Gen Xer. I am a Gen Xer. Just on the border, yes. I'm born in 77. 76 here. Yeah, so we are on the border of Gen X, but we were both from relatively small birth years. And you could kind of see that. I remember there was one empty room in my college dorm. It wasn't like the dorm was empty, but there was one empty room and you could see, oh, we like just kind of fit Whereas the millennials are the, are now the largest generation since the baby boom. There's all this discussion about how special millennials are and are they, you know, more sensitive. None of that matters. What matters is that there's a lot of them and, and a lot funny. of them need, that means they need a lot more houses and we haven't built them. So then the other thing we kind of talk much more seriously about in the book is this idea that it is impossible at the local level to build housing. I mean, we don't have a national housing policy really. What we have is a million local city councils around the country that determine kind of where and at at what cost and how much shelter we build, really, cuz housing is shelter. And that is and so this book is kind of like an examination of of local government through the eyes of San Francisco, but I could have told the story anywhere. I just wanted to take a deep dive on it. I should note to your listeners who are probably about to tune out right now that what I love about local government, it is weird, it is funny, it is zany. There is a reason why Parks and Recreation is such a great show because like, that is truly what local government looks like. It's like these people showing up to these meetings, saying crazy stuff. Nobody really knows what they're doing. None of these people Including are. Including showing up and saying the word finger bang. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was more of a, we'll get to that in a second. We're going to, uh, we're going
0: to get to why, uh, on page 34, 28, 28, 28, page 28. Uh, the word finger, the, the uh, finger banged is used. We will get to that in a minute. Yes. That's how I'm keeping them tuned in.
1: No, but I mean, it is is—it is a funny place. And you're so used to seeing in politics these, like, mercenary people who wanted to be president since they were five years old. Local government is none of that. It's all people who are just, like, learning this shit on the fly, and it's so fun to watch.
0: So w- one thing, and I've, I've l- kind of lived in it in L.A. We have, you know, this local... You know, there's there's been the McMansions that have moved in and, and torn down the old 1920s houses and built these monstrosities that are just, like, plans they download off the internet for 50 bucks. Like, they and and uh and there's pushback and it's and it seems like where and correct me if I'm wrong here but when it seems like the what's happened you so we've got the homelessness thing which I want to get to next but as far as the these local city planners and governments and so on and so forth it seems like they're just bullied by the
1: developers right well so that's what that's what was happening and maybe we should go back to 1945 again, right? So California added a ton. We built so much housing in this country. We built the post-war suburbs. I mean, we completely like remade this country in the image, truly, of the baby boomers. We built a ton of freeways. We built subdivisions to everywhere. Uh, in San Francisco, they had plans to put eight freeways through the city, including two over Golden Gate Park. L.A. had a ton of similar plans. They were at one point going to fill in the San Francisco Bay and just leave like a little channel. It was going to all be basically landfill and they would build housing on top of that. So these were some crazy plans and there was a huge backlash against these plans. I think there was this book Dr. Seuss wrote called Wither California. There was a ton of other books and people were freaked out for good reason because they were doing crazy stuff and there did feel like developers did run the show right? So then there was this huge backlash in the 70s, which is when this guy wrote this book, The Environmental Protection Hustle. And it was almost like the developers had been challenged by this single family home complex of, of neighbors who just were going to fight every single development. So I think actually, and that's where the term nimbyism that's comes where from. The term nimbyism comes from.
0: So, so now we're in a world where nimbyism has ruled the roost and not in my backyard. And, and it seems like it's probably the worst it's been in forever. For, uh, and you have people that can't afford to buy homes. You have, you have as you said earlier, the service workers who are uh, servicing the rich folks but don't have anywhere to live near them, which is why you have people who take two-hour bus commutes to get to their cleaning lady job or, or Uber commute or whatever it is. And so what
1: happens now? So this is to some extent where the book begins. There, there is obviously a lot of history in this book, but really where the genesis of this book came from is I was well aware as an, as an economics reporter at the New York Times that this housing thing was a huge problem, that it had been a problem for a long time, and that nimbyism and local government's kind of resistance to new housing, and in particular higher density housing, was was that th- that this was a huge problem and it was making housing more expensive around America, but I could never find a person or a character, who really showed me that this this was something that regular people were concerned about, and that there was ever going to be some kind of real opposition movement. So you know, as a reporter, you're just sort of sitting there like, yeah, this sucks, but what are we gonna? Nobody cares. What are we gonna do about it? I don't I don't know how to think about this. So one day. I'm interviewing Jeremy Stoppelman, who, as you know, is the co-founder and CEO of Yelp. And we were talking about his favorite topic, which is how much he hates Google and thinks the government should crack down on them and break them up, basically. And at the end of the interview, I said to him, oh, uh, I, you know, I've heard you're really concerned about housing costs in the Bay Area. Uh, is there any like movement towards this? You know, It seems like CEOs and other people would be trying to influence the political world in some way. And he says to me, well, I've given money to this woman named Sonia Trous, and she runs this organization called the SF Bay Area Renters Association, or SF BARF. And he goes, well, she's a little weird. She's kind of crazy, but I kind of like what she's doing. So I gave her $10,000 and just kind of wanted to support her. And he was on the verge of giving her $100,000, which we can talk about in a second. And I thought, this is weird. Um, Jeremy Stoppelman is not one of these kind of like out there weirdo tech CEOs that asks us like, are we all just living in a big video game? What's happening with singularity and you know, these crazy things. He's just a pretty straight and narrow guy. He runs this business. It's not the biggest Silicon Valley business. So he's really in it for like a day-to-day fight. I thought this is so God, this is so weird that this guy who has more than enough money to get involved in politics in a, the kind of traditional support your favorite candidate kind of way is giving money to this kind of crazy character. So I go and I meet Sonia. I said, well, I got to get her number. So I go and I meet Sonia for coffee in Oakland. One day she shows up in uh, acid wash jeans and a snakeskin belt and this like weird heavy metal t-shirt or sweatshirt. And, um, and I was like, what is this? And she showed up in an orange crown Victoria that was like covered in <laughs> glitter. I was like, what the fuck is this? So we start talking and a couple minutes into the conversation, she goes, well, Nimiism is just a form of nostalgia. It doesn't matter what you want to build. People will fight it. She goes, you could even have an abandoned lot and someone wants to build an apartment complex on it. And someone's still going to show up to the meeting and say, no, That abandoned lot is the first place I got finger banged. And so it has this emotional resonance to me. And this is, it wasn't just that she said this off the cuff to me. This is the type of shit that she would say in city meetings. She showed up to a meeting in Oakland in uh, leggings and white cowboy boots and a tank top and started like yelling at them that giving them these economic lectures about you need to build more housing or else you're going to, this is only just going to get worse. Anyway, so she became a very divisive character in the Bay Area all these people started following her. And so she started tweeting at, at SF Yimby for yes, in my backyard. And all these people around her started calling themselves Yimby's. So I did an article on this and I thought this is kind of a funny local phenomenon, but not like a big thing. Just a couple months after the article, or maybe even a couple weeks, some guy in Boulder, Colorado sends me an email and says, Hey, uh, we're gonna have a national meeting of Yimbys around the country, and it's gonna be called Yimby Town. And I was like, What? <laughs> the so the funny thing is, when I was reading the book, I'm literally like, Are
0: these words real? Barf and Yimby and like
1: Yes, you can Google all of this. There's nobody, there's no pseudonyms in this book. It's, so it's so real. Uh so uh so I, I said, This is weird, I have got to get to this, and I was so worried that it would be like three people in a bar that I actually got another story in Boulder, some other separate thing because I was like, Oh, if I'm going to get the New York times to buy a plane ticket, like, and this is just some ridiculous thing, uh, that is not worthy of writing about. I'm going to have to have something else to come back with, but I show up and it's like 200 people in this hotel. I mean, it looks like, you know, like a real over the country. Yeah. There was the mayor of Sitka, Alaska was there from all over the world. There was two women from Brisbane, Australia, who were complaining about this. And now there are these national, I think the next, the fourth one is in Portland uh, next, uh, next week. Or sorry, I'm mean, sorry, ne- uh, it's in April. And I believe Julian Castro may show up. There's wow. a rumor about that. So it has become this big national thing. And pick your city, it's like Seattle, Austin, uh, Nashville, Minneapolis, San Francisco, all these places where housing is a huge problem that is like who shows up there. And and the worse it gets, the smaller the cities get that show up to this thing. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton.
0: Hi, it's Radhika Jones, editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. So the part that I have a hard time kind of understanding is what the solutions are to this problem. And I'm going to say one thing that I have seen firsthand, it's two things actually. One is uh, I'm obsessed with real estate. Like if you look at my phone, the number one app I go to is like Redfin and Zillow. And I just love looking at like houses and daydreaming about like, you know, what it would be like to renovate this one or live in that one or whatever it is. And one thing that's really fascinating is over the last few years, when I would, when I, you can see in my, in just my like lay data analysis, you can see that um, based on what are called hot homes, unlike Redfin, so Redfin, when something's a hot home, it's that everyone's carting it and it's like likely to sell very quickly. You could see where the hot homes had started to spread out of the city. So first it was in smack in the middle, then though people got priced out of that area and it started to go to the edges of LA now it's in like the Glendales and the atwater villages and so on it's it's moving it's literally like happening almost like a wave you can see it week to week and at the same time you have this issue where so many people have been priced out of their homes and it's and have be, are now homeless and living in cars that even our kids elementary school we're we're pushing for this idea that uh, has now been uh, a lot of places are doing where um, they're l- allowing homeless families to park their cars at night in the parking lot so it's safe and they can live there uh, during non-school hours and and they and the security and so on and so forth and it's like that can't be the solution to this problem right that's like a a, a like a, a a band-aid you find like a used band-aid somewhere and that's what you're using to kind of you know, cover a really bad cut. It's so what is the solution to the homelessness and the fact that these people are getting and the gentrification and the speed with which it's happening. Like how do people propose that they're actually going to do anything about this?
1: For starters, I love the used bandaid, uh, analogy. I've heard people say band aid, but oh, no, used, used bandaid it's used, is, it's, is used.
0: It's, it's used. It's n- like, it's like you, you, the sticky barely
1: works. Yeah. And, uh, there's just a little
0: blood on it already. Yeah, and like, exactly.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's kind of like wrinkled. Uh, anyway, the, the solutions, the solutions are, like, as they say with dieting, simple but not easy. We need to have a lot more money for affordable housing, which is means subsidized housing for people who can't afford it, who can't afford anything that a market rate developer is going to build for them. And by the way, I should say that's not some new phenomenon. New housing has always been generally more expensive. And people who don't have much money have generally usually lived in older housing. That's not some new phenomenon in America right now. And then we need to just build a lot more housing and build more housing types. I don't think that big dense glass condos are going to solve this problem. There's been a lot of those built in cities and they tend to be pretty high end. And I don't think lots more sprawl is going to solve this problem, although we should probably think about building a little bit more of it, building these kind of build-up cities in some places. We don't need to be scared of that. You go to Phoenix and places like that, they seem to work fairly well. Uh, What we need is this kind of what's called in policy circles missing middle housing. And what they mean by that is is kind of like old row homes like you see in Philadelphia, um, mid-rise apartment buildings. Let me just give you an image an image that you know and that millions of people, possibly a billion people around the world know and everybody listening will know. There's an iconic image of San Francisco, which is the Painted Ladies. And it's these five or six uh, beautiful, colorful homes on Alamo Square. And behind them, you can see this lovely view now dominated by the Salesforce Tower. So there's some symbolism in that uh, of the San Francisco skyline. This was the opening of the show Full House. What is always invariably cropped out of that picture is that the topmost house has like a five-story apartment building butting up right against it. So if you actually go there, what you will see is that there's this pretty substantial apartment building that takes up almost a quarter of this block right next to these single-family homes. So this is not some radical idea of... You know, building mid-level apartment buildings inside of more lower-density neighborhoods—that's not something we've never done. That's not some unprecedented crazy idea that is only, uh, you know, an emergency response to the time we're living in. This was something we always did, and go through any city. I mean, I used to live in a small apartment building in the Miracle Mile in LA, which is we think of as kind of a a denser, but generally a single-family home neighborhood, go through that neighborhood, you know, around the La Brea Tar Pits. And I don't just mean the giant Park La Brea thing. I mean, that's that's kind of like newer. Or actually, I don't, I, It's it seems newer. I don't, I don't actually know the date on that one. But all throughout that neighborhood, and even to some extent through Larchmont and places like that, you see all these little old, they are older, all these little old apartment buildings mixed into these neighborhoods. And you see this, in cities around the country, I, I said to you, my wife is from Minneapolis, so I spend a fair amount of time there. They have tons of little apartment buildings built into their single family home neighborhoods. But like I said, they're all older. So it's almost like we need to return to this to this thing we used to do. And I, again, I'm not talking about gigantic, you know, 10, 15 story buildings next to a squat craftsman bungalow. I'm talking about just kind of like mixing it up the way we are actually used to seeing one of the problems
0: with the the system and the thing that I found actually really interesting when I was looking at your book was that I've always un- never understood if it's a federal policy level if it's a state level if it's a local level if it's even smaller than that and like it seems like <clears throat> it seems like it's a little bit of everything but so much of it is happening, so much of the, the shitty decision-making is happening on the local levels. And so how do you fix this problem when you've got these little local council people and like you know things like that? How do you fix this problem when it's like you would have to fix a million problems?
1: Totally. So this book is to some extent, like I said, an exploration of local government, which, though that sounds boring... It's not. You get people saying finger bang and you get people. So Sonia also went and sued this suburb. She is not a lawyer. She went and found a lawsuit that someone had filed against a different suburb for making it impossible to build something. She literally copied and pasted it. Wow. Put in some new. And she didn't win the lawsuit, but they had to pay her to go away because she threatened to appeal. She did eventually get a lawyer, but she wrote the lawsuit herself. She does all these banana guerrilla tactics, and they're all quite you know, they lead to these ridiculous scenes. And I mean, it really is almost like made for TV, the, the, just the way she dresses and the way the the stuff she says and the tactics she's uh, pursuing. But how do you scale that? Which is your question. Um, I, so. Is it a grassroots movement? I think it's a grassroots or so these Yimby groups, I mean, they meet nationally, but they have nothing really to talk about. They, there's no, National policy, they, they, all they talk about is what they're doing locally. They share ideas, stuff like that. These YIMBY groups I, I said, or I should have said. Then, um, but this is now multiplying. So every single presidential candidate in the Democratic uh, primary right now has released some kind of housing plan. That has never happened, at least not to this level of specificity. And all of those housing plans have some mix of ways to protect and support tenants through some mix of either money or tax incentives or some degree of tenant protections. And they also have some kind of zoning reform, which is, if you think about it, and without getting into the deep specifics of it, this is a statement by all the Democratic presidential candidates. And for what it's worth, Trump has also done something like that. I think he signed some sort of executive order to uh, try to pursue some kind of zoning reform. Uh, ben Carson has talked a ton about NIMBYs in in some of his speeches. It's kind of funny because these people, all these kind of like liberalish YIMBY people, like refuse to acknowledge this because they just don't want anything to do with the <laughs> Trump administration. But he's actually doing a lot of things that they effectively agree with, but will never admit. Um, but so what this amounts to is a pretty cohesive statement by people at the highest level of government that they are going, that they are posturing that they might start to try to get involved in local policy in some way. We'll see how that plays out. Like all these plans you're seeing on the presidential campaign, who really knows uh, which of them will, but that alone is a crazy statement.
0: What? So from the leading candidates like Bernie, Bernie, you know, Warren Judge. like what are their, what are their viewpoints? Are they the same or are they different?
1: They're Bernie's not surprisingly is much, much, much more liberal and much more, uh, iron fisted. So he has proposed. Nation- Give everyone
0: a home with a Cuba yeah. flag.
1: Well, there there is something <laughs> called the homes guarantee that he has adopted. There's a group that has created a thing called the homes guarantee and, and their, their platform is essentially his platform. He's talked about national rent control. That would be, I don't think that's possible, but it's a pretty, as a statement of purpose, it's a pretty big idea. Uh, And then the rest of them have talked about some mix of zoning reform, which is, you know, some, again, without getting too deep into it, some mix of carrot and stick approaches to encourage cities (laughs) to, to allow for more different kinds of housing types and specifically more higher density housing. And, but the, the biggest thing you can do, and uh, I know this is quite labor-intensive, but this book is about these people, is you can start showing up to local government meetings and getting involved in this stuff. And what was fascinating to me, and I think what, what really makes this book kind of optimistic and fun in some ways, is that when you start showing up to local government meetings, it is startling how fast you can have an impact and how much people will start listening to you. You know, the people that city council people listen to is like, it's a quite a small group of people. Anyone who seems like they care enough about local politics to really get kind of juiced up about it and start telling their friends who to vote for and organizing people to vote for these people, those constituencies are so like few and far between that once someone starts to kind of really demonstrate that they have organized in even a fairly meager way, people really start listening to them to the point that people will start going like why are you even listening to me you know it's like i i feel like there's this process we all go through in life where you find out there are no adults in the world. You know, you you yes. start off at work and you go, oh my God, my boss, uh, you know, and then you get older and you realize, oh my God, my parents are just regular people.
0: Yeah.
1: And the, the part of this oh book is... Oh my God, is, the
0: United States, President of the United States uh, is just a, a, a lunatic reality TV ho show. Yes. It,
1: and there, there are these people throughout this book who are discovering like, oh my God, my city council people are just like these people who kind of like got elected to something. And... And and will actually listen to me, and and it's it's so fun to watch because, like I said, it, it feels like an episode of Parks and Recreation where you, it, it's it's funny, but it's very serious because obviously homelessness and all these problems are are dire and and so sad. One thing
0: that I you you mentioned earlier, you've got these like liberal Yimby folks. What are the what are the NIMBY folks? The not in my backyard. Are they like conservative republicans who 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 love Mitch McConnell and worship Satan before they go to sleep at night? Like are they I cuz because I you know, there's the, in my neighborhood, there has been, there's certain, there are certain NIMBY folks, uh, in LA and there's, they wanted to build, somebody wanted to build an apartment building down the street and, and some people were like, no way. And I was like, who gives a shit? Let them build the apartment building. Like, it's just, I don't, I don't understand what, it doesn't affect, there's no shadow over their home because of it. It's, and there was actually going to be some some low income apartments in there. I you know, what is it that makes a NIMBY person a NIMBY
1: person? So there are no Democrats and Republicans in this issue. You go to Texas where people are complaining about the nanny state and the government and whatever else. They are not they will find plenty of people who identify as conservative, free market, low regulation Republicans who will be Quite unenthusiastic about someone building a higher density apartment building near them, uh, even if it 's not their land they are they are all too in favor of taking the arm of government to prohibit that from happening on the flip side. there are all sorts of uh, sunshine and daisies liberals in San Francisco who will fight like crazy if you try to build a even a subsidized uh, apartment building near them for the for the low income people that they profess to have uh tremendous empathy for. So there is no partisanship in this, uh, in this issue. And there actually has started to be in California, this group called livable California, which other people have described as the kind of the beginning of a statewide NIMBY group, which there never has been before they're typically local. And, there somebody called them the herbal tea party because <laughs> because they uh, because they they have this broad coalition so the one of
0: herbal the herbal tea party Yeah, so amazing. one
1: of the people that has gotten the livable california seal of approval was like a true legitimate r republican trump supporting not like a hardcore trump supporter but like a but a legitimate republican yeah one of the other people who got their seal of approval was an actual avowed probably left of Bernie socialist. And so there is no real partisanship in this. I think generally speaking, they are people who are, do they feel guilty? I th- I no. I
0: mean, like, I do think- they not drive like you, I, you know, you drive down skid row here and I mean, it's, 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 it's fucking sad. Like, oh. it's like you, um, you know, I I was going to work the other day, and I drove under one of the one of the bridges here, and uh, there was an old uh, African American guy getting out of his tent where he lived, and uh, a young kid on a bicycle who had like ridden up, and they like gave each other a hug. It was clear like it was like his grandfather or something like that, and like it's really really hard. Like I, I think about that that the, the, that couple like every day, and it's really hard to. And look, granted, I'm not like going to these city council meetings after reading your book. I probably will start going to some <laughs> of them. Uh, and um, my philosophy has always been like, oh, well, there's probably more people out there that understand this is a problem than there are these NIMBY people. But i am I think I'm wrong. I think it seems like the NIMBY folks are the ones that have the bigger voice. But I just, I can't understand how someone like that doesn't feel any sympathy or empathy for the people who have nowhere to live.
1: I think it's really hard to make the, so let's just start by saying it's not like the people who own homes and even single family homes are bad people. They did not, they bought these homes typically with a lot of uh, struggle and saving over time because of the huge, tr- tremendous job growth in California and other major cities around the country. These homes have become worth several times more. They didn't necessarily plan that. And, I understand that they say, look, I didn't, I didn't plan any of this. I like my neighborhood as it is. This is not my fault. Why do I have to be part of this? What I would say to that is, I think people, whether or not they recognize it, they sort of know their community is adding a lot more jobs, that it is adding the conditions that are going to create pressure for this housing. The most obscene example of this, which I'm sure you're all too well aware of, is they built this gigantic spaceship-looking Apple headquarters in the middle of tiny Cupertino, California. There's no new housing anywhere near that. They, knew, they, they recognize that they are creating the conditions for tens of thousands of new jobs in their community. If there's no housing there, people are going to drive there. Have you been to... You've seen the traffic there. It's insane. It looks like... I was saying to someone the other day, it looks like... Uh, like one of those disaster movies when everyone's trying to get at town <laughs> a town at the same Every time. Every single day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have been in Palo Alto at five o'clock and you literally will sometimes see the traffic so bad on like side streets that people just turn off the car and chill for a little while because it's just not moving like at all. So that is, a, to some extent, their own creation. They don't think it is. But if you're going to create all sorts of opportunities for people to build companies and put more jobs in your city and you have no place for them to live, they're going to drive there and it's going to create this, you know, these enormous challenges. So I think, so I guess what I'd say is even though people say it's not their fault, I think quietly they've watched this kind of growth happen and maybe not given too much thought about it, but, but they, they are kind of participating in that process by voting for people who create all sorts of apartment buildings and stuff. I think also, um, you know, there is this question. So one question I get all the time is, why can't we just move a bunch of these jobs to Youngstown, Ohio? You read all these stories about how there's all these depressed places in the country that don't have jobs. And then you have the opposite problem in all these cities, Bay Area, LA, again, all these other places where they have basically too many jobs. How, how can this persist and why can't we sort of solve two problems at once? The answer to that is, uh, that's not really how growth works. Industries tend to congregate in some place. Film is here. Uh, Tech is very heavily congregated in uh, the Bay Area. And while they do move jobs other places, they tend to move them to places that are like that place. So the best example of this is Amazon does this HQ2 Bonanza, a couple, uh, I guess last year or two years ago, whenever it was, all these poor little towns are like prostrating themselves as if they have any prayer to get Amazon's second headquarters. And then after all these, you know, applications are filed and these poor mayors have, you know, gone to the mat to come up with every, you know, highly expensive tax programs from there, like, oh, we're going to go to New York and DC. Like that's, and, and it's because they sort of know that there's major airports there. There's a huge talent pool there. There's all these, uh, there's culture, there's all these things that the kinds of people who are going to be engineers and other things at amazon.com want to be near. And they're not going to just plop that in Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, and and, and, And to the extent that they can move certain like lower paid jobs away, they do that already. I mean, I was just in Phoenix. There's like a whole Yelp sales office next to a Zillow office, right? It's like Seattle and San Francisco have both congregated there, but they're generally lower paid jobs. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton.
0: One thing that's been interesting with the coronavirus, uh, you're like, where the hell are you going now? Oh yeah, is that uh, I found it so fascinating to see China in full effect, building two hospitals that can t- that can uh, uh, accommodate a thousand people each in six days. Literally, a fucking field exists. A a a shitty muddy field and six days later there's two fully functioning hospitals you go to Asia and especially China and they are building that they can put up skyscrapers in 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 weeks literally with you know from from plants to to the lights going on yet in America it's like I mean there are holes in the ground across this across this this great country that will be there until permits get approved and this happens and that happens. There's a target they've been building for for like 17 years. I'm not actually slightly over-exaggerating literally down the street from here because somebody complained about it and they found like a loophole with how it wasn't supposed to be there. And now it's just like this void of a place. Like is that, can we fix it? Because it seems like when you look at the homelessness crisis, right? The glacial uh, uh, pace that America moves, like, it's going to be another generation before they even come close to starting to solve that. So why is it that there's, like, not—why isn't Mayor Garcetti, like, okay, we're going to, like, put together a new new kind of building structure, zoning thing where you can build pods or this or that or the other to help solve this crisis— they're just, it's all typical business as usual.
1: He's tried to do that. He's, tr- I, he hasn't tried to do exactly what you just said, but they've tried, they passed a huge bond in LA with billions of dollars to build t- tens of thousands or about uh, t- 10,000, uh, you know, you, uh, affordable supportive units for people who are having drug problems and mental difficulties and all these things. And, uh, the, I think there's been a couple lawsuits over where they wanted to build it and that sort of thing. So the China hospital example, I think if we had a, a severe outbreak as bad as them, FEMA or one of those people would build a hospital in lickety split. I think the better example is the way they put up light rail. I mean, in California, they want to put high speed or high, high speed rail or yeah. any kind of rail. Yeah. In California, they have been talking about building a high speed rail forever. There's been like tens of billions of dollars allocated for it. And now they basically said, no, we're not going to really do it. Uh, it's too difficult, it's too expensive. And the reason it's too difficult and too expensive is lawsuit after lawsuit, fight after fight. So I think that we do need to ask ourselves, you know, one of the things we talk about, I talk about in the book is Pat Brown, who was Jerry Brown's father and the governor of California uh, for many years, um, he... He, he created this aqueduct project, which is now called the Edmund G. Brown Aqueduct. And it runs through the center of California. And it is the re, one of the main reasons why Los Angeles has become such a big city. They, there's a 400-mile you know, fake river from Northern California to Southern California. And if you ever make that drive, you can see it right there in the middle of the road. That aqueduct, they had a big state bonding for it. You know, so they had a big election to, to, to whether or not they wanted to pass billions of dollars for bonds to build it it passed, there are pictures of him like dynamiting this mountain to get this project started like, like six months later, you know, uh, now maybe that was too fast. As we talked about earlier in the interview, you know, people flipped out, there were freeways everywhere. And I, I think we need to find some happy medium between like something like China where there's, you know, obviously the air quality is horrible and there's huge quality of life issues that people in America would not want to live in. But there's also this kind of purpose and they're bringing, you know, huge numbers of people out of abject poverty every year. So I think that we need to find some place where we're building shit again and we're excited about it again. I mean, it feels like nobody believes, I mean, you you see this all the time with tech, nobody like believes in the future anymore. Like Mm. they're scared that the, you know, the things we do build will only make things worse. There's no, it feels like there's no belief that they will be better. And I think many, and you know, as, as we've talked about, this book is told through these characters and these different political solutions they're fighting for. So one of the characters, again, is this 15 year old girl. I spent a lot of time with her and her family. She comes home one day, there's a note taped to her door and it's a landlord that has said, "Oh, your rent's going to go up eight hundred dollars." Her mom is a, uh, does cleans houses, does elder care, and even moonlights cleaning offices. She's got no time, so this fifteen-year-old girl takes it upon herself to organize their apartment complex. Ends up organizing another complex to fight this landlord. So she's really engaging in this process. And then one of the so then later in the book, you actually meet the family who moves in after they get evicted. And you get to know their story too. And it, it might not be exactly what you think it is. It's sort of a a surprise reveal of the book. And we're, uh, then there's this nun in the book who has become like an apartment investor. She owns like tens of millions of dollars in property. And what she does is she goes around this, uh, this lower income part of Silicon Valley, one of the last remaining lower income parts, and tries to buy these buildings before like a like a hedge fund or a private equity firm can get to them. So she's like trying to face off against them to buy them before they can get to them. And she's become quite clever in and how she invests. And then there's this like city manager guy who runs this very exclusive suburb and is trying to kind of find a middle path to build housing that isn't too dense, but isn't, you know, it satisfies the, the local community, but is also moving them in a forward direction and, then he gets sued from two sides and gets, ends up losing his job in the process. Uh, so there's all these characters on these journeys that have twists and turns. And you, sometimes you, at one point you might think, oh my God, this person's the bad guy. And then the next chapter, you're like, oh my, I don't know who's the bad guy. You know? <laughs> uh, and I think that that's kind of like what housing is, is that we're all kind of in this thing together. I mean, I hate this term gentrifier, right? I mean, I can't tell you how many people, I mean, I'm sure you know this too. And I've experienced this too. So many people I meet who move to San Francisco and are like, "I'm a socialist. I hate gentrification," and I just moved to the Mission three years ago. And you're like, "What the fuck is this?" You know, like, <laughs> like you are. I'm not saying you need to feel guilty about it, but you are gentrifying that neighborhood, right? You know, and I think that we have to be a little bit more honest about ourselves, a little bit more honest with ourselves about the fact that we're all in this together, and we're all buying these services from lower-wage employees. We're all here trying to better ourselves and find our own selves through creativity, through work, through raising our families. And figuring out how to make a little space for other people to do the same thing is our challenge. And that shit is hard, especially at a local level. I mean, like I said before, there are so many people who think they're Republicans or think they're Democrats. And then you actually ask them, what do they want near them? What will they what are they willing to abide by in their own neighborhood and the situation totally changes as as you discovered with your apartment building down the street.
0: So last couple of questions for you. Um one is did you in the process of reporting the book kind of get any visions for the future of housing that um, that are actually kind of make sense that are not the typical like Okay, you get a seven thousand square foot plot of land and a two thousand square foot house and two two cars can fit in your driveway and so on. Like there's a uh, an actual ex Facebook employee in LA who's built this kind of like little pod community world where um, young it's and it's look, it's not helping homelessness, but it's not hurting it either. It's not it, it is like it's kind of like pod living where young people that can't afford necessarily to live in a, an apartment here get a place to live and a community and so on. Did you come across any interesting ideas for kind of future home-like living that uh, that could be a solution for all?
1: Where, So one thing, this is not exactly that, but one kind of tech thing that I was pretty optimistic about is there's been this huge movement and there's a whole chapter about this towards what's called like modular housing. And that's where they build an apartment building in basically a factory. It looks like an assembly and it's crazy. In 22 steps, it goes from like just a piece of plywood to like an apartment that you're walking around. Uh, and, And then they truck those basically Lego bricks out to a construction site kind of bolt them all together and then make a building. And they can do that in like much less time than it takes to build a normal building. So that's one tech thing that I think actually does look like it has some promise. Um, There is a lot of movement with different kinds of bills and all these kinds of things we talked about on the presidential campaign to make neighborhoods more dense. But one place you can already kind of see that. Is the room that you and I are sitting in right now across this table, face to face? We're in kind of a smaller unit in the back of a house. It Used to be a garage. Yeah, and it's it's not a place that anybody's living in, but it is a place somebody could live in. Yeah, and well, actually, someone is living in here. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, right next door. oh, where he is? Yeah. Uh, so no, and and so they're all around the country. There's been tons of legislation passed to make it easier to build what policy wonks called accessory dwelling units or ADUs but you know some people call them cottage houses or whatever and actually uh, many years ago I did a story up in Vancouver British Columbia which is a little ahead of us and they they call them laneway homes up there but it's the same thing and there's actually this whole industry now a cottage industry <laughs> um, that 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 builds these things in people's backyard and you can go to them like they're like a Kia, you go to a place, you go like I want this one with this fitting this thing and then they will come over and they can build it in just a couple eh, a couple months and it is kind of striking you drive down uh they have these alleys there where they put all their services like trash and all that. And you drive down the back of the alley, which is called the laneway. Hence why they call them laneway homes. And you can see these pretty significant structures. Some of them are two stories in people's backyards. I mean, it once you one or two of them, no big deal. But once like everyone on the block starts having them, you're like, wow, this is, this is like a doubling of the density of this place. So I think that's something we're seeing. I think LA, LA, I forget the numbers, so I might be wrong about this, but I believe they're building like a thousand uh, ADUs uh, a year here. So you start adding that up, and it will be a significant change. And some of those places will be offices. Some of those places will be uh, for you know uh, uh, mothers-in-law and uh, and and nannies. And yeah, something. whatever, all sorts of things. But they are still housing. Uh, that will have some flexibility. And what I like about that is it's not some like mandated thing. It's like, okay, look, we're going to make it a lot easier for you to build a structure in your backyard. And what you do with it is kind of up to you. But a lot of people are going to find that their mortgage is kind of expensive and it's nice to have a renter there. A lot of people are going to find that they want to have their mother-in-law there to help with childcare and stuff. And that person will presumably leave wherever they are and free that up. So I actually think that's something that we will, that is like kind of quietly been the thing that's been happening. So last year in California, there was this huge, or continued into this year, there was this huge controversial bill called SB50, which would have made it possible to build a four-story apartment building near any transit stop uh, regardless of what the local zoning said. So they just told cities that you're going to have to live with this. It failed. But at the same time, this other person passed this bill that nobody talked about it. that it would make it possible to build about two or three units on any single family, well, most single family plots in California. So that, that happened and nobody really talked about it. I mean, if that really runs its course, that's like a potential tripling of density in neighborhoods you know, quietly, this is, this is happening and it'll be interesting to see that how that happens. Just projecting a little bit. It'll also be interesting to see how like, um, how like culture and stuff develops from that. Like if, if everyone starts having someone living in the back, how does that change things? It, it'll be sort of interesting. And I was also thinking to myself the other day, this is just now I'm really going out there, but if we, st- you know, there's all these, uh. Richard Neutra and all these iconic L.A. architects mm. uh, that whose designs we've come to think of as beautiful and uh, insignificant. You know, they were just building housing for people. Mm. You know, there was not some... This wasn't some art project. It was functional housing for people that they put their own creative... It was yes, uh, Eichler, at uh, Eichler, they put their own creative touches on. And if we unleash these ADU things, there are going to be structures that 40, 50 years from now, some of them are going to be ugly as shit and we're going to like regret it. <laughs> Just like some of this Art Deco stuff we see. Although I actually love some of that stuff. But but other pieces of it are going to be, if we really unleash this, they are going to be 40, 50 years from now, people are going to go, holy shit, there was all this creativity and and different manufacturing techniques. And, and and it's possible we will look back on this and be like, wow, there's all this cool shit we made. I mean, you should read what they wrote about Victorians when they were being built uh, in San Francisco. People hated them. Uh, And so I don't know. I think, I think there's all sorts of neat stuff that might come out of this wild world we're building. And I think it's possible that we'll look back on it and be like, that was actually really fun.
0: Last question for you. Uh, San Francisco is the core central character in your book really uh and it is kind of it really is the core central character in this story because it's got it all it's got the tech bros and the pink ladies and the nimbies and the yimbies and the barfs and the you name it and do you think that they it seems the like guy go there you know for work here and there and i see more Buildings being built, but they're in one little spot, yes. Soma and so on and so forth. Do you think that there will be a point where uh, homelessness and inequality and all these things become so bad that the NIMBYs lose? Or is this just here for st- here to stay?
1: Somebody said to me the other day that uh, it's like watching a drug addict who has to hit rock bottom. And if even if they're a step above rock bottom, they got a couple more benders in them before they really hit true rock bottom. Where that point is, shit. I thought it was two years ago, and here we are, right? So, um, I I don't really I know we will get there. I truly think we will get there. It's it's uns, it, it is it, it the humanitarian cost alone is just too much, but um, and and again, that's why you're starting to see presidential candidates at least posturing in the direction of talking about this. The reason I picked San Francisco is that it it makes for an amazing story because it's so bananas. Uh, on top of that, you know, there was some pretty significant reporting challenges in this book. I mean, I really got to know this family while they were being evicted. I watched them go through. I got to know their landlord. I got to know the person who moved in after them. Like, I, I mean, it took months, really a year, but several months of intense daily reporting to sketch out that story and build trust with people who are going through like the worst thing that's ever happened to them. So there's no way you can do that And and capture it in quasi like novelistic detail unless you're standing right there and that means you have to live near it, Um, but San Francisco is really just this character that is a, a a a vision of where the rest of America is going. So you just said that that they're building a lot of housing in one place. You were referring a lot of condos, but in one place you were referring, of course, to South of Market, and that's not odd. Uh, in uh, New York, they have Hudson Yards. Uh, in LA, it's some parts of downtown. In Minneapolis, I, t- I told you a, a city I spend a lot of time in, it's called the North Loop or the Warehouse District. I just gave a book talk just a couple of days ago in Washington, D.C., in The Wharf, which is another one of these build up neighborhoods where they just put a bunch of stuff. All around America, you see this new build up condo neighborhood. I think it's called the Pearl District in Portland. Um, That neighborhood exists because it's almost like a bargain. It is a bargain between the single family home neighborhoods that are saying, look, we recognize we need to build a lot more housing, but do not build it here. And a city that's like, okay, here's this plot of land. It's usually some former industrial district, which is what Soma in San Francisco was. Let's just build over there because nobody really lives there and nobody will complain. And so even that building is emblematic of this challenge we have throughout this country in this book, in any city, not just San Francisco, which is we need to build if we're going to address climate change, if we're going to address uh, wealth inequality, if we're going to address educational inequities and, and have more people have access to these really good schools, we're going to need to build more housing where people already live. And that, that kind of neighborhood you just described is, is, is our way of kind of cheating that system a little bit by finding the one neighborhood that hasn't been developed in every city. And that's why you see that same pattern in every city. And we're not equipped for that because for, I, I, we began this interview uh, you know many years in the past talking about the the building boom of the post-war suburbs that never really defined the american landscape we have politically technologically and otherwise oriented ourselves around this idea that let's just keep going to the next suburb let's just keep going to the next cow pasture it's it no one will complain it gives people this kind of housing they want with a backyard we're going to have to, like I don't want to quite say undo that, but start building in a more intense way. And we are not equipped for it. And so that is, that is the challenge. And uh, it, is, it is a challenge in San Francisco. And the reason San Francisco is a great character beyond the, as you say, the barfs and the whatever, and the entertainment value, is that it's so far along that it gives us Lessons for how we can respond to it in other cities. to some extent, I, I, I said, I think in the jacket cover, that California has long been framed as a look at the nation's future, and now that frame is a cautionary tale. Um, I think you probably you've probably watched this in your career. So you're a reporter who covered uh, technology very, very closely, and I bet you, when you were first starting to cover Twitter and and all the stories that became your book, you had a certain kind of press release that somehow found its way into your uh, inbox uh, intruded its way into in your box cuz you you never i i bet you never requested it and that was a press release that said x town is going to be the silicon valley of x oh uh, yeah i got them all the time all the time <clears throat> now Drone you, you
0: yes capital they yeah
1: yeah and now all these cities you see them seeing we don't want to be San Francisco. We're terrified of becoming the Bay Area. We don't want to be the Silicon Valley. It's like they're scared shitless of becoming this thing that just 10 years ago they were like hiring economic development consultants <laughs> to, to convince reporters like you and me that they could become that thing. And just think of how insane that is, how, how, how dire of a situation that turns to. So this book is kind of maybe to some extent giving those people a roadmap for what exactly not, for to, what do. not to
0: do. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Well, the book's amazing. The characters are fantastic. Um, Thank you so much, uh, Connor, for taking the time to join us today. I could talk to you for five hours about this. It is called Golden Gates Fighting for Housing in America. Thanks so much.
1: Thanks so much, and it's great seeing you again because now that you live too. down here and I live in the Bay Area, and I haven't seen you in a while, so we'll
0: uh, I, we'll have to have you back on the show to talk all about your skateboarding.
1: Yes, exactly. Well, it's going to be in the Olympics next year, so it's going to be culturally relevant. Oh, that's right. Or this that's year right. rather. That's
0: right. Well, we'll have you back on. Yeah. All right. Thanks to my guest today, Connor Doherty. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, and thank you to my sponsors this week. I will see you all next week. Don't forget to wash your hands. Stay away from other human beings. Don't touch your face. All that good stuff. And if you have any questions you'd like me to ask my guests next week, make sure you hit me up on Twitter at at Nick